Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Louise Perry, who is a British writer, author, and feminist of a post-turf stripe. In this conversation, we talk about the limits of liberal feminism and the impacts of the sexual revolution and how they didn't shape up to be exactly liberatory in a beneficial way to women. And we also wonder about what happens going forth with feminism and with women and with men. All together, big soup. Check out her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. It is loaded with thought and fact and question. Without further ado, here is Louise Perry. You worked for a period of time in rape crisis work and dealing with women directly who have experienced and undergone that. And that was a result. Did you just stumble into that work or was that like the culmination of other life events leading in that direction? Um, I was, I was volunteering there when I was at university and then when I left university, I needed a job and they were advertising. So I ended up doing that and I had intended to stay in it um, or stay in the charity sector in some sort of way. But I, I ended up sort of accidentally becoming a journalist in that I, I'd always sort of been interested in in writing, but not that I would ever tell anyone. I was like terribly embarrassed to say that my life's ambition was to be a writer um, because it seemed like such a fanciful thing to aspire to. It's like, it's not a real job. It's a crazy job. And, um, but I sold some things for, for, I sold some pieces and ended up just kind of on a roll, um, publishing more and more. And then it got to the point where actually I was, um, earning more money from that than I could elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And then now we're like four years later and I do. Um, so if it, for, my, for my bio now, it's different than on the book. I now work for the New Statesman and also for the Daily Mail. So, you know, Did you expect mean very to be much writing for them? To be writing for the Daily Mail. I know Daily Mail is kind of the right or conservative leaning. Yeah, it's the it's the it's the biggest newspaper in the UK, and it is um, it's kind of halfway between tabloid and broadsheet, and it's primarily it's the only newspaper that's majority read by women, and it does it has a it's a famously conservative outlet, hmm. and I'm now writing for them as well as the New Statesman, which is a famously uh, left wing magazine. So I'm okay. writing for both. So for British people, they their jaws drop. At the combination. <laughs> it won't mean anything to anyone else. But <laughs> Well, but that is interesting that in the very least it displays that you are speaking to two pawns, maybe, yeah. or you have your toes in, in two waters. Maybe. Yeah, deliberately so, yeah. And the issue of women, broadly considered, not even just feminism, but women mm. 
the issue, the topic, the experience, the beings. Uh, <laughs> that narrative, or just the narrative around women, is kind of uh, hotly contested and very politicized. So yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. interesting to watch your book and your thoughts kind of be developed in a kind of cultural milieu where you're doesn't seem like you're speaking to one side or you're kind of speaking to mm. women of whatever stripe and men Trying too. Trying to, I think that increasingly feminism is leaving the left. I don't think that there's an obvious reason actually for feminism to stay on the left. Um, I don't necessarily think we should join the right either. I think there's a sort of, I think there's an extent to which feminism floats free slightly of the, of the binary, which is why I do deliberately try and speak to as many audiences as possible. Mm -hmm. Well, feminism has many currents and there's a difference mm. uh, within British feminism. I'm sure you guys have a milieu of opinions, but the difference between American feminism and British feminism is kind of different too in flavor yeah, yeah. and my own exploration. So somebody such as Julie Bindel mm. would be a staunch left feminist yeah. who grounds her feminism in a class analysis. And we have, we have lots to... of arguments about it. Julie's an old friend. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so you would incorporate that into a third way or another way? I don't know. I mean, there are just so many waves defined in such sort of micro terms. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, I, I suppose this is a sort of strain maybe that's been present throughout. It's always been a very factional movement. Um. And are you suggesting women aren't a monolith? <laughs> I mean, it is, I think it's a bit more faction. I mean, uh, it's clearly every social movement has factions. I think feminism is unusually infighty, which is, I think, to do with some ways in which women are temperamentally different from men. Maybe we'll go on to this because this is, this is, this is a key point at which I'm departing from people like Julie. So the backdrop of what you are bringing up with your book, mm -hmm. well, you bring up a lot of things, but one key point of departure, or at least contention that you're trying to forward is that men and women are different and the differences don't just stop here. Yeah. They also take place in value structures, behavior, and that manifests in a variety of different ways. Why was that resisted for so long in feminism and why is it now very important or essential for it to be reckoned with? Um, I think that it's resisted for very good reason in that it is this, this idea of women, women's psychological differences and to some extent physical differences has been historically exaggerated and used against women, right? Um, I forget now exactly the number, but there's this idea um, in uh, 19th century sort of fledgling psychology that um, women, because women's brains are smaller on average than men's, so we were, we were, I think it's the missing nine ounces or possibly five ounces, I can't remember the exact number, but because we're missing this sort of crucial quantity of brain matter, it means that we are also um, inferior intellectually. You know, so there's clearly a long and very... Um, ugly history of of scientific sexism um basically um and this was used to prevent women's entry 
to the professions just to you know resist suffrage all of this stuff so I, I thoroughly understand the instinct to kick back against anything that sounds remotely like that I think the problem though that we've got to is that um I mean twofold so one is that those it is becoming increasingly apparent as scientific research becomes increasingly sophisticated that those differences do exist they exist on an average level and they're not to do with like our brains being smaller right they're not as crude as that but there are certain traits that women and men differ on on the average and you know these are overlapping bell curves there are lots of people in between there are lots of outliers at both ends um the the important ones are you know women are more agreeable than men are which in layman's terms roughly means women are nicer than men um more caring women are more neurotic than men are um men are a lot more aggressive than women are that difference is pretty marked and for the purposes of my book um the, the important trait that I'm interested in is sociosexuality, which is what psychologists call one's desire for sexual variety, which is a relatively fixed psychological trait. Um, I don't think anyone will be surprised to hear that men are higher in sociosexuality on average than women are, despite, you know, outliers, etc. Lots of throat clearing, yeah. there are exceptions, but on average that difference is quite marked, which at the population level becomes very obvious. Um, I think that it has been an error for us as as women as feminists to 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 reject disciplines like evolutionary psychology, which are interested in these differences and where they have come from in our evolutionary history. Mm-hmm. Even though the the temptation to do so comes from this idea that you know these are all a bunch of sexists and we can't sort of legitimise their project. Um, I think doing that has to some extent allowed the discipline to be dominated by the sexists. (laughs) You know, this has been like a, there's been a very little feminist steering of any of this research. And it, and I think that's to our detriment. Well, feminist or female? I either, I mean, I mean, many scientific disciplines are dominated by men for, I would argue partly for, um, <laughs> because of innate psychological differences, but um, both, mm-hmm. because I think it's considered to be a sort of no-go area for feminists. And I mean, you'll, you, you'll probably remember the James Damore incident at Google. Um, for listeners who don't, James Damore was a Google engineer who wrote a memo um, it, laying out the reasons he thought why there was an underrepresentation of women in particular roles at Google. And he argued that it was to do with the fact that women were on average less interested in the sort of hard sciences that were translated. On into average. Certain, on average, on average. And so you would expect, and, and because people at Google have to be like insanely off to the, to, to the right of the bell curve in terms of their interest in, hard sciences and maths and the, the just being generally um, a bit autistic, frankly, you would just expect there to be fewer women at that end of the tail. And therefore you would expect fewer women to be represented at Google, which is indeed what we see. You do see more women in things like um, HR, HR communications. Yeah. yeah. All this, all the stuff that that requires um, soft skills. Women are very good at office politics on average, right? Is that a soft um, skill though? Because that, the, those, those get kind of sharp, you know? 
<laughs> calling them soft skills kind of sometimes very aggressive, aggressive skills teeth. yes indeed but um yeah these are the sort of domains in which you expect to see women um day more uh, as far as i am aware as a, as a lay you know uh, an educated lay person but a lay person um day more science was rock solid but he ended up losing his job because it was just wasn't considered an acceptable thing to say and it ended up being a huge scandal I think that the reason that Damore, he was clearly like, if he'd been better at office politics, he would have realised that you can't say this stuff without getting in trouble. But I think the reason that he he has he has later said that uh, he's autistic, and that's part of the reason why he didn't like recognise that this was something that you're not supposed to say. He just he's just like, well, the research says that this is what it is. I'm going to just educate my colleagues, and then it really blew up in his face. But mm-hmm. I think that what was done to Damore was outrageous. And I think that in general, um, we make an error in trying to reject this science because every year it just stacks up and stacks up. And it doesn't just apply to things like STEM representation. I mean, you know, STEM representation matters to people in STEM. To some extent, it matters to the rest of us as well, sort of downstream. But it's by no means the most important area for any of this applied psychological research. Um, the what I'm interested in for my for the purposes of my book is to do with differences between male and female sexuality, which are which are marked and which I think are also largely innate. Mm-hmm. And so, and sort of, if, you, if we start from there, if we say, okay, this research has validity, these differences that we all observe around us in the world and which we can see exist cr- cross culturally, they exist. What then is the question I'm basically asking? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what what then is the domain of Minian argument, or at least exploratory discussion? I mean, what do we do? I know that there is one way of looking at the past as romantic or outmoded, but going through our traditions and saying, what purpose did chivalry and romance serve that was beneficial and detrimental to men and women in that mm-hmm. period of time? And to what degree we can import any of the past uh, ethical or cultural gender um, kind of formulas into the present. I don't think we can enforce that, but it's really, it's, it's interesting to watch the convergence of feminism kind of converging with kind of a rediscovering a lot of the things that conservatives were fighting for all along. And you do this too in your book when you get to Mm. marriage is kind of, a social institution that regulates at a mass level the differences between the sexes, specifically, mm. specifically sexuality, but um, also psychology and need. And then when we get into the baby discussion, one thing that you brought up in your book is that there's an insane small amount of papers about gender or feminism even reference mothers. Mm. Mm, I, can't remember the, and, the, I can't remember yeah, the numbers I quote, but yes, it's a really small proportion. Um, 3% I know, I mean, or something I, like that. Yes, I did notice this when I was at university because I did a degree in women's studies and uh, there was nothing almost about motherhood. In there. Did you, was that like a glaring omission or just something? That I, kind of, I, like, I felt it to be, but then, yeah. I mean, I think it just, I, part, I was the only in my um my cohort of I don't know a dozen I was the only person who wrote a dissertation that was related to motherhood at all 
as far as I remember. Um, I wrote about the history of the cesarean section. Um, but yeah, it is just, it's just absent. And whether or not this is a reaction against, you know, the idea that women are always, is motherhood is compulsory and women are always kind of primarily defined by their reproductive lives. I guess it's partly that. It's also just the fact that there are very many mums in academia and that has a lot to do with the fact that academia is really hostile to mums and parents in general, but mums in particular. So hmm. I think it's what we're seeing downstream of the fact that it's very difficult to pursue a job in academia if you have children. And so inevitably you end up yeah. with a group of people who've, re- who've rejected motherhood for whatever reason and therefore are less likely to write about it. Hmm. Um, and I think that, I mean, I... <laughs> I very rarely use the word patriarchy. I think I hardly ever use it in the book, maybe once or twice. I don't, in general, think it's a very useful word to use. I mean, it clearly has a, it has a definition in anthropology, which is completely sound to do with men having certain positions of power and, and inheritance and so on being reserved for men. Um, so it's not that it, the word is without meaning. It's just that the way that it tends to be used now is much more vague, much more to do with a sort of amorphous sense of male privilege and superiority, which I just don't think is a very useful. I just don't think it's very useful. It doesn't tell you very much when you use the word, which is why I try not to use it. Um, well, to be fair, the Caesarian is named after the man who came out of the wound, not the woman who whose belly was was breached by a doctor right so i mean there's patriarchy there (laughs) i mean yes it's not it's not difficult to find examples in our own culture and historically of women being put in second place i think the difficult thing is sort of proving the idea that women are um always and everywhere permanently resigned to second place that's more difficult i think that um i think it is clearly the case that women anywhere and everywhere, including in our apparently much more gender fluid society, are assigned very different social status from men and very different social roles from men. And I think that we've, we're sort of the most gender neutral society to have ever existed, possibly. Um, which I, I think, think Sweden's a bit ahead of you guys, but... Right. Well, I mean the West generally, in yeah. that we have, um, I think that's largely a result of technology, the fact that we've got the capacity to do things like delaying childbearing with the pill, to do very similar types of work because we're not doing manual work, most of us now. Um, That sort of thing kind of contributes to our gender neutrality. It's still the case that men and women are clearly very distinct from one another in all sorts of important ways, which are obvious to anyone with eyes. It's only in kind of elite academic institutions that you're supposed to pretend otherwise. Um, Okay. So you kind of have a, it sounds like you have a bit of a bone to pick with academia, not alone. You're not in strange company or anything. No, well, it is a very, um, um, I mean, I enjoyed my time at university, you know, it's not, but it, it is not particularly in the area of feminism. I don't think it's an area where actually free thought is encouraged or even permitted. You know, it's interesting. There's this meme or this comic that floats around every once in a while. And there's uh, like the first panel is this. uh, Somebody's got like a box that they're standing on and there's a sign more women in STEM. And then Mm -hmm. a bunch of women like go to get their gender studies degree and then start 
demanding more women in STEM. But that also occludes that the mothers are completely left out of gender studies. I just think it's really important. It's a very important um, thing to bring up that mm. the, a lot of the queer theory, a lot of the postmodernism um, and critical theory that has influenced certain waves of feminism was developed by women who had chosen not to, for whatever reason, bear children. And that feeds directly into a very fundamental clash at the basis of liberalism, which is the conception of the human being as this individual autonomous rational agent that does not add up when you look at the baby and the mother. And you have to just kind of cut the beginning and end of life out of the picture. And it's just not realistic. So when- Completely the, agree. When we get to the point where we start to grapple with the baby and the mother and care and dependency, that is where I just perceive on a intuitive level, women, women intellectuals are going to have a, a huge contribution um, and should be who we're looking for to, to start to theorize about that and make a more holistic um, mm. under, worldview. I think one of the... Um... One of the phenomena that definitely do, does look like patriarchy, whether we want to use that word, but I think that the result of it is is the marginalization of women. Um, but it's also really difficult not, not to crack, is the fact that um, women are the ones who bear children. Women are the ones who experience all of the physical burden of childbearing, the fact that you really do have to withdraw from public life in many ways when you're heavily pregnant when you're nursing and so Mm -hmm. on and women also tend to you know it's partly culture it's partly biology um be much more strongly emotionally attached to their children so women are much more likely to be the ones who choose to stay home and opt out of the labor force if that's on the cards increasingly of course it isn't because no one could afford to live on one income but you know that's another that's another discussion um and of course, in the past, before the pill and so on, women would expect to have a lot of children. So you, you it just kind of by necessity, you end up with women just not participating in public life in the way that men do. Yep. Um, and not, in the very least, taking a hit to their yes, trajectory. Yeah. Even if they're permitted to, which obviously, of course, they're often not, um, you just always end up with fewer female politicians. Senior politicians are even less likely to be female I mean, there are all sorts of exceptions. I mean, we in the UK might be about to have our third female prime minister. Is it? You know, oh, cool. this 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 is changing. But Wait, sorry, Thatcher. Who's the second? Theresa May. Oh, and now we might have uh, Liz Trust. When when was May uh, Ray? Oh Her gosh, Ray? I can't remember the years. Was in the nineties or no no no. So May, Blair is, May, is, Blair? May is more recent. She's post Blair. Okay okay. Yeah, so we we will have had two women within a decade, I think. Um, and this third one is conservative or? Uh, all conservative party. Labor. One of them, which okay, is very interesting. interesting. Yeah. No, the Labour Party have never had a female leader. They've had really? female interim Well, they don't even know what a woman is. So It is interesting, isn't <laughs> you have to it? Give it's them telling. A bit of slack. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, they've also never had a non-white leader, whereas the so our current runoff between two Tories, one is a woman and one is a, a non-white man. So either way... 
the Tories are making history. It's very interesting. But, you know, in general, yeah. it's clearly the case that women are underrepresented in all sorts of positions, like senior positions in public life, as well as in all sorts of low status roles, like, you know, waste disposal, famously coal mining. You know, there are all sorts of areas Brickling, in which yeah. women are underrepresented. But the ones that matter in terms of uh, the kind of, in terms of power are obviously the powerful roles. You know, if you have fewer yes. women in, in positions of authority, you have fewer women making these important decisions, which often will end up with women's interests being marginalised. So I think, you know, not necessarily women leaders aren't necessarily very good at standing up for other women, but kind of by definition, men are just not going to have as much insight into the female experience. And so are less likely to, I don't know, you know, write policies that are really good for mothers and children, that sort of thing. I mean, the other thing, of course, you end up with is that the women who do get into positions of senior leadership now in our post-pill world are less likely to be mothers so i think that there is a problem and whether we want to call it patriarchy or not you know there is a problem that is downstream from biological difference which leads to mothers in particular not having as much of a voice not having as much power in society writ large is it fair to summon the trope of the hand that rocks the cradle, is it fair to begin to seed some admiration or uh, respect at least to women and therefore kind of explore the power by saying that the role of mother and the role of wife is actually very influential, just inwardly, not outwardly? Is that fair? I know a lot of people I think don't like going I think there is truth. But... I think there is truth to it. Um, you know, traditionally, women had immense power as, say, Sunday school teachers, um, as teachers in general, um, still a very female-dominated profession, um, and as mothers. I think, though, that there's a limit to that power. And I think that there are... I think it is important to have to have the interests of women and mothers in particular represented in other in important areas of public life. So on that, on that, on that issue, I am aligned with pretty much all other feminists. I don't think any feminists really disagree with that <laughs> position, <laughs> but I, I, I guess that I'm coming at it in a slightly, I, my explanation for it is a little bit different. I think it has more to do with biology than it does to do with patriarchy as dark matter. Yeah. But we're, we're reaching basically the same conclusions. The invisible dark god of uh, patriarchy. Yeah, it's very gnostic. But the, so practically, the way that that would actually happen, with mothers taking the hit necessarily, and then kind of being sidelined, uh, yeah. explicitly and implicitly from public life, is through associations. Is through mothers mm -hmm. relying on each other or make, building associations to then lobby. They would have to work yes. in concert in order to affect things. I think that's where you see the levers of power being. Um, Arrived, at least in the West, through these associations, people coming together under a certain mm. cause. Now, activism has a lot of different faults to it, and any sort of group maneuver has a bunch of different faults to it. But if you were able to design your own mom-friendly feminist lobby group, like what would be the, I guess, the goals or the principles that would define it? Uh, have you heard of Mumsnet? 
Yeah, I've heard of them. I think they've heard of me, more importantly. Have they? It is a a very large parenting platform in the UK. Okay. And it has been the site of a huge amount of um, uh, collective action against trans activism. Yeah. To the extent that it's become infamous among trans activists for being a sort of Ground, I think I think I've read it described it's in the, the press Tumblr. as the, the ground zero of British transphobia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, it's not a coincidence that, I mean, not everyone on mum's set is mum, but they primarily are. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that they are absolutely not having it with all of this sort of erasure of biological difference. And it's interesting When did you that, stumble on them? Oh, I don't know. I've known about mum's net are... Have you been participating in it for a decade? I, I just want to kind of like a time frame, generally speaking. I don't participate. I'm a lurker. Um, okay. Although I did recently do a Q&A on Mumsnet about my book. But in general, I'm I'm a lurker. Um, but I bet I've been like reading Mumsnet for at least a decade. Okay. It's been around for ages. And I think that it really picked up the pace in terms of the, the response to the Gender Recognition Act reform proposals in, in the UK really spurred on. The mum said stuff. So, I mean, it's and it's an interesting example of the fact that it's entirely online. So, it's a good use of technology in that sense that you know you've got women who are like on their phones in the kitchen or in the nursery, and and you know not necessarily they're all, they're not all necessarily stay at home mums, but mums are sort of almost all of them are incredibly time stretched, um, and mums net permits organising around those constraints. So, I think that's promising. And yeah, so you I just to dwell on that for a bit, because it's kind of interesting thing, if you have anything to say with regard to like the ideologies that are there in mom's head, because if you just define this is for mothers, you're yeah. not just going to have, you're going to have a whole range of people because a lot of different yeah. moms think a lot of different ways. So I'm just wondering what that, kind of interesting developments ideologically you've seen. It's, it's, it's um, almost everything. I mean, the, um, there aren't very many trans activists or trans allies on Mum's Net because I think they've ended up leaving because of its reputation. Um, so you know that would be one exception. But there are there are plenty of radical feminists. Um, there are women who are more conservative. Um, I'd say that you can pretty much see the whole range in general. Um, probably the unifying thing though is that they all take biological difference very seriously. They wouldn't all be on board with the psychological differences that I'm laying out in my book. Some of them would, some of them wouldn't. I had, if any, you know, if anyone's interested, they can just Google Louise Perry Mumsnet and read the Q and A that we did recently because there were some really, really interesting questions. It was really. Good. I will put that in the in the show, uh, in the show notes. Okay, to get back to something that, that I find fascinating, um, is that you said that feminism is a famously fractious mm. movement. It's just, it's very interesting because when we go through the psychological differences between males and females, you find that females are both higher in neuroticism and higher in, in agreeableness, yes. but they also do a lot of very high highly social um it's called relational aggression or yeah, uh, verbal yeah. aggression and stuff like that so it's just yeah. it's interesting to watch 
in my very limited exposure to just radical feminism, the way that these kind of these groups kind of come together, and then they break apart, and then they come back together, and they break apart. Mm. And it just seems really inefficient. And it seems like if you were designing an army to get something done, certain behavior patterns are actually not good for getting things done. Um, mm. How do you see that being regulated? I mean, it's hard to. I think it is to do. It's clearly not unique to feminism, but I think it's very marked in feminism. I don't think that it's just like a false stereotype that feminists are prone to win fighting. I think it is clearly but true. Um, and it probably has a lot to do with some of the average differences between men and women, because feminism is obviously like composed almost entirely of women. So things like um, feminine styles of aggression, which are non-violent, which are much more to do with damaging reputations and spreading gossip and all this kind of stuff. Um, you see that in feminism all the time. It's like darkly comic that you'll see women who are otherwise very gender non-conforming be extremely gender conforming when it comes to their styles of aggression, uh, but not necessarily aware of it. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. another thing that feminism is really prone to and which is also holds true in girls' schools, for instance, in other female-only spaces, is um, tall poppy syndrome. That's a very long-standing thing in feminism that women who sort of um, are unusually successful or seem to be presenting themselves as, as leaders will tend to be torn down, which isn't very good, I think, probably for the health of the movement. Hmm. Um, I don't really know what, an example, what a solution to it is. I mean, I personally find that I'm given... Having, having recognised this, having realised that this is a problem within feminism, I make a conscious effort not to behave in those kind of ways. Um, and I try really hard not to sort of succumb to all of the uh, infighting. Mm -hmm. I don't really know there is another solution. It's just the nature of, you know, in the yeah, same the way nature. that like all male groups will tend towards having like fist, fist fights. So famously fist armies, guns, yeah. yes, famously um, militaries need like, police forces attached to them because the men are always brawling with each other. You know, women don't do that. <laughs> we just, <laughs> we just, we just spread false rumors about our enemies. No, it's well, just, it's, it's, yeah. it's just the nature. The policing of, is also distributed too. There's a lot of tone policing, language policing, um, uh, keeping people yes, in line yes, with, yes, with but opinion it's all, and stuff. It's all non-violent. I yeah. think that if you want a really beautiful example of what feminine aggression looks like, look at Twitter. Because by definition, Twitter cannot be violent. It forecloses the possibility of violence by the nature of its being online. And so the only aggressive tools you have available to you are the, are the feminine ones. Yeah. To do That's with. why everybody, everybody turns yeah. into a bitch online. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Be yeah, it's like, being like, it's like being at high school again. Yeah. Yeah, which is another, I mean, I try not to use Twitter very much. <laughs> really? Partly for that reason, yeah. yeah. Well, you're a wise, wise woman. I read a lot of Twitter, but I try not to post very much. Yeah, lurking? Yeah, that's lurking. Style. Yeah, that's, like my, that's my online, online persona. Article or, kind of, <laughs> or a book every once in a while. So one, one really awesome frame that you use, uh, I can't, I'll have to rely on you to, to give me the direct quote, but you, you kind of... At the very beginning of the book, you say that the goal is something about trying to figure out a way for men and women to work harmoniously in order to 
in order for society to continue and continue mm-hmm. to function. That's kind of my take on this too. Like you have men, mm-hmm. you have women, we're different, we're fun, we're funny, we're terrible, but we have to get along somehow. Yeah. And without us, there's no more us. So we have to really figure this thing out and yes. angling in that direction rather than liberating women from the patriarchy or something along that line is just from the beginning is much more constructive. So what have you started uh, begun to construct with that as your, your kind of your guiding principle any, any anti-separatist view um do you know nina power you come across her yes yeah she's, she's heterodorks podcast i'm sure no, that's yeah, nina she, paley uh yeah. she wrote so nina power um is a british philosopher and writer she writes for comp she's a an editor at Compact magazine now and she okay. wrote a book earlier this year called What Men Want, which is about masculinity. It's a great book. Mm-hmm. Um, and she makes this slightly slightly um, mischievous observation that political lesbianism and the men going their own way, Mugtao, however you're supposed to say it, online movement, of, of basically two sides of the same coin. I mean, political lesbianism might have more, um, but like, the motivations behind it might be, might be, might be stronger. Um, in that, the you know, many observations that political lesbians make about the nature of domestic violence and you know mm-hmm. women's vulnerability and the, the the burdens placed on women through childbearing, you know, it's all true. Um, their solution to it is for women to just opt out, um, presumably with the long term goal of the species just ending. Like that, that seems to be the only possible route. Um, and Mugtao have the same reasoning, basically. It's just that it's men going in the opposite mm-hmm. direction. So the, you know, Nina's quite right to draw that draw that parallel, even if it's a slightly... Um, well, I don't think, even if they are two sides of the same coin, I, I never foresee a moment where the political lesbians lay down with the men going their own way. They're never going to be no. bedfellows. No, and nor do I think either of them are ever going to be very persuasive to the general public. No. Because most most people want it. most people are straight and most people want to have kids. And both of those endeavors <laughs> rely on, you know, the opposite sex to some extent. Um mm. you know with the reproduction one, you can try and work around it, but it's you know the nature of egg and sperm does necessitate some male-female collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, I think that the goal has to be, how do we get along? That, I think that is in a way the, the sort of central feminist question of mm-hmm. how, do, how, how do we get along? And um, I mean, the argument that I want to make is that you have to start from the recognition that there is a, there are certain imbalances that aren't going away. Um and in particular, when it comes to um, to sex and particularly to casual sex, I think that women are at a disadvantage on an innate level in some really important ways. The fact that we're smaller and weaker than men by quite a lot, particularly when it comes to upper body strength, the fact that we get pregnant, so we have to suffer the consequences of an unwanted pregnancy, um, the fact that we have to be the ones taking hormonal birth control with all of the side effects that that often means for women um and the fact that women actually just want to have casual sex less than men do on average 
there are exceptions to that, but the 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 differences are fairly clear. You just ask women, you know, like how much do you like casual sex, and they're actually quite blunt about it generally in surveys. And um, and I think when you look at it like that, you think, hang on, how why would you possibly want to sell this idea as some form of feminine liberation? You know, at least of all from patriarchy. If if the the if the the the, the weight is so heavily loaded against women in this regard. Why should this be considered pro-women at all? I think that we, that I think that the the urge towards um, liberating women from sort of bourgeois sexual norms and and allowing us to have sex like men and to imitate male sexuality, which is basically what the sex positive movement is. It's about encouraging women to have a more masculine style of sexuality. Um, is based on the premise that the differences between us are soluble if given enough political pressure. Yeah. And I don't think they are. And given well, that- it, It's just an <laughs> extension. Well, I, I, it, shooting from the hip, it, encouraging women to have uh, or to embrace masculine forms of sexuality could be seen as just the next step of encouraging women to value and chase masculine forms of power. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is I think that is the reasoning. Absolutely. Um and I think that encouraging women to chase masculine forms of power was also a flawed project, which is not one I necessarily engage completely engage with very much in this book. I might in a future book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um I I well, think that you just just take the power. You don't have to explain it. Just it. <laughs> and then I write think, a biography. <laughs> um, this idea of women, this fundamental idea to liberal feminism that that, that sort of regards um, the the ideal individual is a masculine individual, whether or not you say it as such. I mean, it was as you were saying at the beginning about the fact that liberal individualism is completely incompatible with motherhood because mothers aren't individuals, not really. And babies definitely aren't individuals and old people and disabled people, you know, there's so many exceptions to and the idea you, of the And you can't reduce individual. that to, you can't reduce that to market. You can't just assign a value of emotional labor and care labor and then no. somehow figure out an extraction and redistributive method other than marriage. You can't have the government do that. The government can't solve yeah. that problem. The market can't solve that problem. As we might. I mean, this is a, this is Culture's a, a, good. Non-stop political question um, in the UK and elsewhere: How do you deal with issues to do with childcare, for instance? Because the the old method is that women stay home unless they're so poor that they have to go out to work. I mean, historically, women working is a sign of terrible poverty. Remember my great grandmother, who came from a, a middle-class English family and ended up going out to Australia. She worked. Um, before she got married, she quite liked working. She worked for a period um, when they were low on money. And then as soon as they weren't low on money, her, her husband was like, you can't possibly go out to work. I'd be completely humiliated hmm. because that's the era when women working is a sign of that the, 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 the family is in strife, right? It's not a good thing. And then post-sexual revolution, we have um, reconceptualized women going out to work as being a sign of um, freedom and empowerment and clearly there are some instances when it is there are some jobs which are genuinely um, interesting and fulfilling I have such a job <laughs> for instance um, they exist but 
you know, you actually look at the polling data, you ask women what they want, they overwhelmingly want to spend more time with their children than they are currently doing. They want to have the option to stay at home. That 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 biological, you know, link to your baby is immensely strong. I'm lucky in that I, I, I'm, I'm able to kind of have the best of both worlds, mostly in that I work from home and I do something very interesting and, you know, um, but the... Your baby's just right off camera, right? That's why you're speaking. So, he's, up, so he's upstairs asleep, yeah. <laughs> I do just speak quietly. Um, the drive, though, to have women participating in the workforce, like full stop in all circumstances. The, I mean, the way that this gets discussed by politicians in this country and elsewhere is just crazy, um, including conservatives. You know, the, the Conservative Party in this country is dominated by people who are um, actually double liberals. Like, you know, they're liberal on the economy and they're liberal on social issues as well. And they will tend to view women who are at home looking after children as basically wasted labour mm-hmm. because they're not, they're not contributing to GDP. I mean, of course, they are indirectly in the sense that if no one's looking after these children, the children are literally going to die, you know, within within minutes almost. Like there's very few jobs that are that are as life-savingly crucial as childcare. Because as the mother of a toddler, I can tell you, they try and commit suicide every few minutes. So you're like, it's, it's very important work, as well as all of the, the, the role of, you know, um, moral guidance and, and education and, you know, everything about it is extremely complex sophisticated work right raising children as well as having more routine menial elements to it Hmm. and the model of having two full-time working parents is just a is a very new model and it's a really tough model well it depends on how you define work it is when mary harrington will talk about when and uh Rachel, Erica Bakuloki talk about like mm. earlier times where the work was all local, but when we yes, went into yes, and you can incorporate childcare into it, yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah. It's, and it's then the, now that it's the leaving that, the home, yeah, aspect. But now that doing, we have this fancy technology, and so far as we can keep it, yes, we can return to a more local, present, working and and rearing at the same time. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, Doesn't there's matter. always a. Uh, I wrote this book largely while my son was asleep. Um, it's cheating. Inside you and outside of you, too. Yeah, yeah. The whole yeah. Um, I wouldn't recommend it, honestly. It's not a very really? relaxing way of writing a book, no. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, it's achievable. Um, and there are some other jobs for which that's also true. It is achievable. Um, but it's difficult, you know. Like, there is, there, there is a wisdom to the stay-at-home mother model. It wasn't just about oppressing women even if that was also its effect in some senses it was also about how, who the hell is going to look after these children and the problem that we come down to is now the the sort of preferred model by most um by liberal feminists in particular by most feminists is the state state childcare. i mean at the very least state subsidized if not actually state-run childcare. um and the problem with that model is that it's not very good for children. It's okay, but if you, you know, every every bit of research agrees that children do much better when they have a consistent loved adult in their life. It doesn't necessarily have to be mum, but it is often mum or dad or, you know, granny, nanny, whatever. The institutionalised model where you have a kind of rotating cast of staff 
and lots of children being looked after at the same time by strangers for money is a very novel model historically. It's not great for children. And I don't think it's very good for mothers either, because if you look at, you know, how happy Oliver Twist, mothers you know, report being. What? If you look at how happy mothers report being, by yeah. that, you know, it, it's really not obvious at all that this is improving women's lives at all. But this is the kind of the socialized system is 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 the one that's that's basically being presented to us as the obvious route to to um, feminist accomplishment, you know? Yeah. There was a tweet not too long ago by Joseph Biden. He's the president of my country. America. <laughs> I think I've uh, heard of him, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, he tweeted something about uh, – it was just so odd. I, I should have pulled it up. I didn't know we were going to be talking about this. But he just – the way that he framed motherhood as we need to get women back to work. Women are just like they're all they're yeah. doing is caring for old people and children. We need to get them back to work, yeah, and we're going to subsidize caregivers to come. So yeah, they're wasting yeah, time. Yeah. So you're going to hire somebody to care. Yeah, and you're normally for... going to import, import them from a third world country. Like that's also part of the model, right? That you end yeah. up with this like vast labor force that, of low skilled workers to do yeah. job to do work that isn't actually low skilled. It's low skills in some senses. I mean, in terms of wiping bottoms and and feeding puree and you know all the stuff that you have to do for mm -hmm. um dependent beings whether or not they are very young very old or disabled um you know that's sort of basic but actually loving relationships aren't basic or low skilled you know particularly when it comes to children um education and moral guidance and you know behavioral adjustment and all of the stuff involved in raising a child is not low skilled. And actually what children, what the, the fundamental problem with this idea of, of viewing childcare as basically a factory production problem, you know, you just have to make it more efficient. You know, one of the things that's currently been discussed in this country is whether we should make childcare ratios bigger so as to make childcare cheaper because currently childcare mm. is expensive in this country the idea is to have more children per worker as a way of basically like making the, the factory process that bit more streamlined um the problem with doing it in that way is that children don't regard their caregivers as fungible they don't actually think that any you know any given low schooled worker whoever can do the job just as well as the people that they love and, and, and care and care about and who care about them. Mm -hmm. Like that you can't dissuade children from feeling that way. Mm -mm. And no, so you can't you can't regulate their behavior until they have uh, a primary caregiver, even if that's yeah. the simulated preschool teacher. I've I've gone through that process. You get a new kid, mm -hmm. you have to acclimate them and somebody one of the teachers has to be their primary. Like they're yeah. you know the extension of the parent and especially one two-year-olds they absolutely need a center around which to spend and it has to be mm -hmm. a human being so you can do that yeah. swap but it takes time and it takes care for the yes. mother to entrust the yes. daycare worker with the child and then the child's heart actually has to you know i don't think it does have to be a hundred percent mom i mean i think that the the kind of 1950s model of the woman who stays at home all the time in sort of suburban isolation I don't think that's a very good model. It's also not a very historically representative model. Mm -hmm. um, it's much, much more common for women to spend a lot of time among other women 
day to day and children as well um and to be much more local in every possible way and for you know everyone to be just working closer to home with the home is historically much more common um so this idea of you know father goes out for 10 hours a day or whatever and leaves wife at home is not it's a model that produces a lot of isolation and sadness so i'm not saying that that's the ideal by any means but equally i think the current model we've got isn't actually an improvement and i don't i don't regard it as a as feminist at all i I regard it as capitalist in that the basically the thing that it promotes most effectively is gdp growth yeah yeah Uh, you just made me think about um you know i'm one of those persons who can't help but contemplate contemplate the degeneracy of my culture and the downfall of the West. And uh, so I look back at other historical events and, and see how different um, different s- cultural signals kind of uh, coincide with the downfall of empires. And uh, mm-hmm. one thing that you're just now making me think, to what degree do these empires start to fall? Because there is a breakdown in the bond between the mother and the baby, the the bourgeoisie or the elite ruling class start to kind of outsource their ch- child care, um, and the bond to the country, the bond to values that maintain things, start to devolve too because that primary family unit was treated as less than sac- sacrosanct. So I just I don't know if anybody's thought. Did, le- did late Rome have daycare centers? I don't know. I don't know, but you do <laughs> imagine the question. They, yeah. <laughs> so okay, so there's there are things in the past, there are things in the present. There's this thing called religion that uh, can more or less orchestrate and fulfill or fill uh, the value and promulgate the values between men and women and families and churches seem to be where a lot of parents end up going, mm-hmm. not just for faith, but just for that extended community that's so necessary. So mm-hmm. packaged with the church is that narrative, is that story, is that cultural regulation. Are you have you are you persuaded by anyone? Do you think that there can be a non religious uh, culture that promotes the well being of men and women that can articulate that without outside of a some sort of formalized religious myth? I think it remains to be seen. I mean, we are we are an intensely co- uh, Christian culture. You know, the West in general, intensely Christian. I think we remain it remain intensely Christian. Everything down to our our moral values, the way we structure the working week, everything. Um, we've just subtracted God um, for us in a really very mysterious sociological process. Um, everyone abandoned religion and we we don't know and quite knows why, but it's clearly happening. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think it remains to be seen whether we can sort of sustain that cultural Christianity without the Christian bit for much longer. I think we'll find out. Oh, okay. Are you uh, are you given to advocating for uh, uh, resurrecting of the explicit? I'm, I'm not. I'm not aspect. religious, and okay. I think that it's important. I made a very deliberate choice to make this argument in secular terms and to us and to a secular audiences, you know, as well as a religious audience. But that, I wanted this to be sort of um, intelligible to people who had secular priors. But also I recognise the fact that I am swimming in a kind of Christian soup 
and a lot of what I'm talking about is, is Christian virtues, basically, whether or not we necessarily describe it with that word. Um, and it is very interesting to... One of the things I write about in the last chapter is... Um, so the last chapter makes the case for marriage, monogamous marriage. And I write about... Um, I give a sort of empirical argument for why monogamous marriage is good. You know, I kind of by, bypassing the traditional arguments for it to say, look, if you look at societies who have monogamous marriage versus societies that don't, societies that have monogamous marriage do better in all sorts of really important ways. They are more affluent in general. They, um, which seems to be to do with the fact that when high status men can't take on extra wives, they instead do like economically productive things with their extra resources. Um, they have lower rates of child abuse because um, polyamorous households, like there's a lot of conflict between stepmothers and stepchildren. Um, they have less domestic violence because conflict between co-wives also tends to produce, you know, conflict in the house. They have less crime because you don't have um, this well of unmarried men who don't have any reason to sort of behave themselves. You don't have any incentive to to shape up and be pro-social. There are all sorts of ways in which it's just empirically a lot better to be in a, a society that has a monogamous marriage system. And most actually societies on the anthropological record haven't. There's only about 20% of societies on the anthropological record that have been monogamous. The rest pretty much have been polygynous so in, you know high status men having multiple wives almost no one is is um a polyandrogen po- polyandrogenous whatever yeah, it's very of. very rare it's got to be very, under very rare specific and, and it's not normally to conditions. do anything to do with sort of female empowerment it's normally got then the husbands are usually brothers too so it works yes, out on the genetic exactly yes too. yeah so it tends to have um some much more sort of peculiar material reason behind it um but the monogamous system has ended up being very, very successful over time. And that seems to be the reason why it's as prevalent as it is, even though it doesn't actually serve the interests of high status men. Most high status men have given the choice would take on multiple wives mm-hmm. for obvious like evolutionary reasons. But they're, if they're prevented from doing so, it's actually better for everyone else, which is why it's been described. I can't remember by who, but some wag has described it as um, sexual socialism. sexual socialism monogamy is yeah because it prevents the rich guys from just accumulating more and more wives um and monogamous marriage is is you know it's a christian thing it's not unique to christianity it comes you know from from antiquity in some ways but um the sexual revolution of the first century the christian sexual revolution is a is a very very interesting historical event in that the the roman world in the roman world it really was not considered like harvey weinstein's behavior would not have raised an eyebrow the idea that men should have sexual access to their social inferiors was completely unquestioned you know this is a slave society where you have vast numbers of um mostly women but also men enslaved in in, in 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 sex slavery where buying sex is the same cost as buying a loaf of bread you know this is the this is the world in which um christian sexual ethics emerges and christian sexual ethics is extremely unusual in that it says not only that women should be chaste 
basically every culture says that women should be chaste. It says also that men should be chaste in the sense that men should be faithful to their wives and they should get married to one person. They shouldn't have sex before marriage. That's so radical. That's a crazy thing to say in that, in that cultural context. And yet, of course, we know that it, it caught on. Initial converts to Christianity were, were mostly women in part because the sexual ethics that was being proposed served women's interests so much better than the status quo. And I think that that's worth bearing in mind because the, you know, it's not to say that we should just be, you know, whole, wholesale adopting whatever Paul tells us to. It's because the, the way that feminism is set up as a kind of very, with this very narrow historical window for the last maybe hundred years max, is as feminism in opposition to religion and feminism, you know, tearing down these oppressive patriarchal constructs and as all kind of being liberated. And I say, you know, clearly there are some, that like there's an extent to which that's true. Religions are very, very complex cultural artifacts which contain a lot. And sometimes they contain um, ideas or structures which were derived from a time with very, very different material circumstances. You know, to say that we should be imitating wholesale all of the behavior of like, you know, people li living in the desert with incredibly high infant and, you know, like they clearly were living very different lives. And I imagine many of their, you know, not eating shellfish, whatever it is, makes sense in their, in their time. And also when it comes to morality, it makes sense in their time, doesn't necessarily make sense in ours. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to say that we should just sort of swallow the Bible whole, even if we could all agree on what it says, which I don't think we can. Um, but also I don't accept this idea that necessarily shaking off Christian sexual ethics is the route to women, women's well-being, because it's evidently the case that lots of non-Christian societies have been a hell of a lot worse for women in all sorts of ways, at all sorts of you know periods in history. And I this this fundamental progressive idea that everything, which of course comes from Christianity, you know, the irony is like the the idea of history having a shape and it's all ascending to the kingdom of heaven eventually, that you know, things get better and you just have to kind of shake off the past um, and keep pressing the freedom lever again and again and again, you know, make us all more, all more free. The problem with us being more free is that the playing field isn't even. If you're, if you're, if you're dealing with a situation of sexual asymmetry where you have one sex who are just in sexual terms much more, much more powerful innately, you know, physically and, and in other ways too, yes, freeing those that group of people is not at all necessarily going to result in greater safety and happiness for the other half, not by any means. And I think that is the sort of the fundamental error within mm. the liberal feminist view of this. Mm. Um, and it, I think it does largely come from sort of setting up, setting up Christianity as a straw man opponent, particularly in America, less so here. Mm. But I mm. think in America, because the Christian right is very powerful in America, and because abortion has been the preeminent issue for such a long time, oh, like, yeah, you yeah, can yeah. you can see why it would end up having that very binary view. Yes, I think though that it leads us astray to view us in that to view it in that way. Abortion aside, let's dodge that one. One thing that would be difficult to convince women is giving something up. That there has to be a trade-off there. That 
if we are to figure out what makes us happy, it might be the case that women dressing in certain ways doesn't lead to the outcomes that they necessarily want, or it doesn't tempting men uh, and then blaming men's attention or men's nature on the way that a woman presents herself. I'm, I'm using a very low resolution argument, but one thing would be to start to encourage chastity or start to encourage modesty. And in that exchange where women begin to act more modest and then they demand of men to be more modest too. Like there's this exchange mm -hmm. of giving up, but if everybody's just, if we're stuck at, we can't tell other people what to do, or we can't say that certain actions have consequences, then we can't fix or change any sort of the levers of the tensions between the sexes and the reality of the tensions between the sexes. So I don't want to tell women what to do, but if mm -hmm. things are going to change, somebody's going to have to do that. Um, I think it might happen spontaneously, to be honest. And I don't, and I'm not sure if hmm. um, we women, women are like natural slut shamers. Like going back to this issue about feminine aggression, um, slut shaming is actually generally, you know, like women's. Yeah, work. I always blame it on men, but it's women who do it. Yeah, they men do it too, but they men tend to do it. Men tend to be very protective of the chastity of their wives and daughters. Yeah. And maybe sisters, you know, other kin. And mom jokes too, you know, they don't like those. Yeah. So. It's a protecting family honor is very um, important to men often, but they don't care about it, it. Generally, they don't care about protecting the chastity of a woman they're buying sex from. Like they're quite happy for there to be some women who are sort yeah. of, you know, reserved for the non-chaste category. Um, it tends to be... Um, women who direct that kind of um, <clears throat> um, shame at their peers. And I don't think it's ever really gone away, to be honest. I think that we have a sort of, there is a tightrope that young women walk, which is quite a difficult one, where on the one hand, they have to be up for it. You know, they have to advertise the fact that they love being choked. They have to, you know, um, imitate porn and, and so on. Um, this is clearly something that young women are reporting more and more as a consequence of porn culture, that the pressure is on to be um, very sort of publicly sexually available um, with all of the downsides that that brings. I mean, you know, the, the, re the reason that women, that young, that teenage girls go out in miniskirts and crop tops and stuff is not because they want like horrible, ugly men to be sexually assaulting them. It's because they want to be attracting the attention of men that they like unfortunately trying to do both at the same like both like both outcomes are going to result whether or not you want them to this is like a difficult thing that teenage girls tend not to understand mm -hmm. um because they just don't have enough experience of the dark side of male sexuality um there's that patriarchy yeah. again i mean yeah, yeah but then it's is it coming from i mean clearly i think that the um these men shouldn't be sexually assaulting these women. You know, obviously, I obviously think that. And I obviously think that male restraint is the priority. I also have a realistic sense of how likely 100% of the male population is to restrain themselves. You know, which is why in practice, I think that women have yeah. to, you know, take note of this, mm. um, even, if it's, even if it's constricting in really frustrating ways. I think that the, the, the question I keep, um, being asked during interviews is whether 
a sexual counter-revolution is on its way, whether there's a, a swing back against some of the really extreme sexual liberation stuff. Um, I think that it might be, yeah, it certainly seems to be the case that on, say, TikTok or wherever, which is where culture happens now, um, there are some young people who are definitely reacting against the sex positive stuff. Equally, there are some young people who are really into it. Like it goes, it goes in both directions. Um, it's very clear that, you know, the sex recession suggests that things are changing. Young people are having less sex than they used to. I don't think that that's to do with sex, like a reaction against sex positivity. I think that's to do with the fact that people aren't getting married and married people have more sex than unmarried people mm. do. Um, people are just getting married later and later. And also to some extent, you're ending up with that kind of de facto polygyny in the sense that things like on dating apps, you see that you end up with the high status men having lots of partners and the low status men having none because mm. we've removed the monogamy restriction. So the high status men aren't, mar aren't having multiple marriages, but they are having multiple sexual relationships concurrently yeah. back to back. Um, so it, it, which is it's, in total, it's a total win-win for them. I mean, they don't yeah, even well, have that's to my provide whole, that's, anything. That's my whole thesis. Yeah, they're absolutely <laughs> loving it. I think that they, um, I think that like they have problems downstream. I don't think it's a, a, a sustainable way of life. And I don't think you actually end up sort of maximizing your happiness by stringing along a load of women that you don't love. Um, I think that those men would do actually much better to commit and to have children and to have meaningful lives. Um, but um, in the short term, they're absolutely, they're, they're having their life Riley. So, yeah. Um, yeah, the sexual counter-revolution thing, I don't know. I mean, I think it's worth bearing in mind the sexual counter-revolution is, is not, for all that I despair at elements of sexual culture that we're in now, I'm also acutely aware that there are worse alternatives. And there are sexual counter-revolutions that could look really ugly, in which I wouldn't welcome. And I think that that's one of the reasons actually why I think it's very important, just like with evolutionary psychology, having feminist participation, I think it's very important for, um, I mean, we're not gonna talk about abortion in depth, but I think that the road judgment is a very clear example of feminist overreach followed by a really ugly swing back that actually is much, much worse than a compromise would have been. You know, the reason that you have these really brutal trigger laws in some states is because this has become the, the, the you know, the central culture war, the central, the central legal war for so many decades. And you've had polarization and you've had entrenchment on both sides. Whereas we know that actually the majority of Americans and, and also other Westerners actually share basically the same view on abortion, which is that early abortions are okay. And there are, there are like circumstances where later abortions should be legal as well. Like actually, basically everyone is pretty much on the same side on this. But the kind of extreme end of pro-choice rhetoric, particularly on social media where it's public for everyone to see, has, has ended up pushing the extreme pro-life rhetoric even further as well. And you've got both extremes kind of egging each other on. And I think that that's profoundly unhealthy for a culture and also actually results in much worse outcomes for women longer term. Yeah. 
So I think that the the goal, I think the task for feminism now is to recognize that clearly the sexual liberation project has failed in really important ways. It hasn't had the outcome that we wanted it to. And the, the sort of the negotiation project now where we try and, you know, the pill's not going away. The the internet isn't going away you know there are there are ways in which our lives have changed materially and, and which are almost certainly permanent um but can we find a way through it to sort of protect women's well-being and, and promote um um harmonious relationships between the sexes that's 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 the task yeah. it's difficult <laughs> yeah no it's it's really difficult i one of my most incendiary interviews with was was with Kara Dansky a couple of years ago and we got we got stuck where she wanted men to stop raping women and i'm like well how do you solve the problem of evil and she's like well you just need to stop raping women i'm like i have i haven't raped a woman in years but evil still exists like how do we stop that and and uh why I bring that up? Just the um, the way of viewing men. I don't know if it's feminism's job to view men in any other way than as oppressors, but for women to start to view the good in men, and for men to start to view the, or for both the sexes to foster kindness towards each other and uh, understanding a deeper understanding of each other and empathy for each other, and then also understanding that there's different needs and stuff. That is the project that's, it's not feminism's job. I think it's a cultural project. I don't know how yeah. that is affected yeah. on uh, an ideological level, but other than just trying to be a good guy myself, not a nice guy, good guy, different. Cause I still yeah. want to be a bad boy. Um, but you know, uh, that's one way of promoting that. But I, I really enjoy that your book was one, another way you framed it. You did a lot of layers in this book with your framing and then all the Thank content you. and stuff. Is that you try to you try to set it up as kind of advice for women, mm. specifically young women, and um, I think that it's also good advice for men too to understand what women go through and um, mm. shaking off the trenchant rhetoric of activism. Um, it doesn't seem that mature. It doesn't seem like it's helpful. Whether or not mm -hmm. it gives us a sexual revolution or a counter-revolution, it just doesn't seem to provide space for deeper understanding of each other. Yeah. So one last question, unless mm -hmm. you had a thought and you wanted to do more abortion, we can talk about states' rights. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, thank you. I've, my book's been published in America in like six weeks, so I think I'm going to be up to my eyeballs in road. Oh, great. Okay, yeah. are you going to tour? I guess you're a mom, so you're going to virtual yeah. tour. Yeah, I think it will be all, almost entirely virtual tour unless I really have to, but we'll see how we go. One thing that I picked up, and maybe I was misreading you, is very subtle, though. It seemed like you have a bone to pick with Margaret, Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> like It seemed like you got a little bit... A little bit feisty when you brought her up. <laughs> I'm partly um, messing with my British readers because I, I use it because Margaret Thatcher is like the real sort of folk devil on the left um, in this country because she was she responsible for because she, she was responsible for destroying industry basically and and um, undermining trade unionism and her long term effect has been you know, much more towards free market politics. Yeah. And I mean, whether or not she, 
I mean, she's a complicated person, you know, and I don't think that she actually, she, she herself was actually a very sort of um, modest and upstanding kind of low, low middle-class woman housewife. Um, but so she didn't approve of the greed is good kind of behavior in the city, but that clearly was her legacy. And mm. so she's, she's, she's despised by the left. And so I am um, the, um, the point I make in the book is one that it's actually not really right to understand Margaret Thatcher as a conservative, certainly not conservative in the sort of GK Chesterton sense in that she didn't, she actually pursued a project of creative destruction with her policymaking. Um, and that actually the, the deregulation of the financial sector and the deregulation of the sexual marketplace should be understood as similar <laughs> yeah. by anyone who has a, you know, anyone who has a sort of leftist analysis of the free market and recognizes that actually when you remove structures and boundaries and limits, it doesn't have the effect of making everyone richer and happier. It actually has the effect of making like, the exploitation what's the of formula the yeah the yeah the the mackerel wins and the minnows oh, lose the, or something like that the uh freedom for the pike is death for the minnows mm, pike yes that it permits deregulation permits the exploitation of the poor and deregulation of the sexual marketplace i argue permits the exploitation of um the most vulnerable people in that marketplace the, who are poor women Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's the female plus poverty that, that results in, you know, intense vulnerability, particularly when it comes to things like porn, prostitution, all of this. Yeah. Um, it's that, it's that slice of population who are most at risk. And yeah, so, so I, is, so I accuse, is... I accuse my opponents of being sexual patriarchs. Is, what <laughs> <laughs> is it, is it fair to, to re- completely be as reductive as possible to say that you want women and men to get married at 22, pop out the babies and then get it over with at that point in life and then go on to live happy and retired uh, with grandkids. I'm not so, sure if yeah. I want to put a number on it. Prescription? No. But I mean, well, uh, we have this problem, don't we, when the, the labor market is really uh, says that in your 20s, that's the most crucial time to actually be in the office, which just make, you know, there's a lot that needs to change if we were going to go back to people having. I know plenty of my mom. 22. My mom became a professional after we were all raised. Like, right. Some she... people do do that. I mean, I think I would. I would absolutely love to see much more routes for women who've had their children already. Yeah. To get back into university and to get back into training and stuff. I think that's a terrible um, gap in in our society. Um, I mean, not even just women who didn't have careers before, you know, women often change careers after they've had children, had a period out, out of the, out of the market. That's very, very common for women to have those kind of two phases, um, which is less common for men. So like, I, you know, I would absolutely, for instance, you know, waive um, student debt for mothers, say. Hmm. I think that's the sort of policy that I think would be really, really good for, for, for because, because I mean, the, most women want to have two kids. Um, the pill allows us to do that. We're not now in this situation where you have loads and loads of kids and then an early death, right? Like we, we're living longer than ever. Yeah. We're not having, we're having, you know, one, two, three children, which doesn't mean a very long period of your life where you're at home. If you, if you are at home, 
and then you have decades and decades of you know potentially interesting productive time um and i think that it would be yeah i think it would be fantastic if that were if that were were cherished more than it currently is in our in our policy Hmm. where all the focus actually is on i mean it's also to do with the housing crisis i mean there's just there are just so many there are so many impediments to young people having families but if it were possible then yeah (laughs) there was there was wisdom to the old model well, great book, wonderful book. I'm going to try to find this Mumsnet Q&A, <laughs> read all the spicy questions and your even spicier answers um, <laughs> to that if, if such occurred. Um, thank you very much for uh, allowing me to pick your brain on this. Thank you so much. You're, you're part me. of a spate of women and uh, our collection of women that are coming out with some pretty challenging and great ideas uh, yeah. And I don't know if it's a wave or not, but there's something interesting at the boundaries of feminism. That's I think that's true. And I think it's partly like a a post-turf thing. Hmm. That's what's You're been t- dominating the gender conversation for such a long yeah. time. Okay, the, TR, the gender trans yeah. issue, but that's yeah. still, for me, yeah, it's, it's actually pointing at like previous issues or kind of yes. showing faults in the previous issues. Oh, I mean, it's completely the logical conclusion of all sorts of faulty ways of thinking going back decades and decades. And I think that there has been this amazing, in the UK, and maybe in the US, is it happening? I hope it's happening in the US, but definitely in the UK, there has been this kind of collective awakening of a lot of women who were like, what the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. And I think that there's been a sort of recentering of thinking about biological difference as a result mm-hmm. of that. And I think that that's that's where a lot of this thinking is coming out, which is, I'm, I say post-turf, you know, tongue-in-cheek. Post-turf. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> it's a new wave or a riptide. Who knows? <laughs> we'll see how it swells. <laughs> but wonderful. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. I'm going to end the recording. Cool.